You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. Morning. Squadcast is a freaking nightmare. Didn't it? It messed with us on the back end. It's like, it's really messing with us. We're very professional here, John. It's obvious, isn't it? Now, I do seem to remember that we had quite a good conversation last time, and that's always nice, because you do get some podcasts where it's like a real struggle, and I go away thinking that it was like bad, whereas with you guys last time, it went really well, so let's just hope we can uh, repeat. Well, that's a delightful compliment. Wow, I think you guys know what you're on about, you know. <laughs> we try. I watched you all weekend. Aww. I watched the race live, and Danny Moreno was our guest prior to it, so... We had some incentive to watch Danny as well. She had talked about how she was out there a week and a half early and prepping for it and all that, doing some wrecking and all that. So I watched it live, and then it was such good coverage that I watched it again on the treadmill <laughs> the next day because I've gone through most of the the YouTube races for Golden Trail and everything so many times that it was good, fresh content. So I've watched the race twice. It was no less impressive the second time. Cool. Thank you very much. It was a lot of fun to run, and I'm really glad people got to like follow along too, because that's something that's kind of missing from uh, trail running a little bit. And in recent years, it has really improved, and it is really fun that like not only you get to see what's going on, you kind of actually get to feel like you understand what we're going through and like what it actually takes to run twenty twenty five. Oh, sorry, two thousand five hundred meters climb a marathon on some technical terrain, and it's like uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. It was wild. It was the best live coverage I've seen in a while. I just want to know, like, one, how bad was that digger you took? Was it was it actually bad? Or was it one of those that you were so numb from the race already that, that you didn't even, you just bounced right back up? That was it. Uh, it wasn't that bad. But I guess to, uh, like, commentators and stuff, it's, like, something to talk about and stuff. But, yeah, it really wasn't that bad. I came down to a bend. There's four guys standing there. One has a bike and a camera, and he's going to film the live feed. I look up fall over it's like you just lose concentration for the smallest amount of time and that's it you're sliding on your on your face uh the, the, the actual like scrapes and grazes is not that bad at all but my right leg like cramped up like my calf and they were kind of on the twingy side really early in the race which really sucked but that would like that fall then just sort of set it off and then my right calf was cramped for like the next 100 meters or so until it kind of loosened off so that was like the most detrimental thing the announcer is at some point after that, the commentators, who did a great job, but they said something like, and John, I wonder, it looks, you know, it looks like he's starting to, to feel bad and to have some fatigue. Like, well, he's 38K into this thing, and he just fell going down the mountain. I think it's safe to say he's starting to not feel great. Yeah, I think, like, I definitely felt better than I did in OCC, because that was literally the most painful experience of my life. Uh, but I think, like, you have to push in these oh. races and I tried to keep it controlled through to the end. And I'm actually quite proud of myself that I managed to sort of like run a bit smarter than I would usually rather than just hammering everything I could. Uh, but I still didn't believe the time gaps. Like there was no way I thought I could have a three or four minute gap. So I was still like a little bit nervous, but really tried to keep my head on my shoulders um, and like, yeah, run it in to, to cross the line sort of like safely at least. It seemed like um, it seemed like you were constantly sort of on the back half of the race um surprised with your positioning and what your body was giving you at the moment like you were like it should be taking a shit on me but it's not 
Like why, why, why am I still where I am in positioning wise? Like when I read through your, your, uh, your blog about just, you know, it was a nice summation of the race. Um, it just felt like you were like, Hey, my body's still working kind of thing. Is that how it actually went? Like, that's how you felt out there. Yeah. Like, uh, it definitely felt like, so, I mean, sometimes you can push through to the end and sometimes you can't. And sometimes a marathon feels a lot longer than other times. But I was generally surprised because like the guys I was racing are like in my mind stronger than me generally and especially on the climbs so to be able to then actually draw out a lead on the last climbs was like surprising uh and like obviously I was happy that it was happening but I was just like but I do feel like I've been a generally a different athlete over the last two years of training so it's just fun that now I'm actually relearning what I'm capable of and actually trying to build some confidence in the fact that I can run as well as the other athletes and I deserve to be up there and I deserve to be at press conferences and I am sort of like where I'm supposed to be. It's interesting that you said relearning because one of the the wild pieces to that race, visually to me, was that you adapted on course as if you were learning how to race that distance. Because I we've watched you race for years. We know what you race like. And you early on, it looked like settled into that, all right, we hit some bit of a down, I'm right back up to that front group. And then we climb, all right, they go back, and that's fine, I'm going to... And then all of a sudden, one person went past you, and you didn't get gapped the rest of the race on a climb. And it looked like you had an, a mid-race adjustment mentally. And it's strange to see, like, 10 years into someone's career, learning in the middle of a race. But it, it looked very apparent on the screen that you were the only person in that field that had, like, a realization on course that day that, oh, I'm different than I was. I think I generally need it nearly every race because I'm generally not a very confident racer. And before every race, I convinced myself that every victory I've ever had, I won because of a certain set of circumstances. And it wasn't against the best people or they were just having a bad day or like mm. I've never really won. And I don't really deserve to be that good. And I, I, I do have general confidence issues and I can play myself down a lot in the week before the race, which like thinking like that makes me train really well for months on end because I think that I need to really nail the training. But it also, I guess, can have some negative um, impact on the race when you really have, like, you don't believe in yourself. But usually, as soon as I get running, especially when I get into the second half, you just forget about everything. You just get on with it. And I guess that's kind of what happened uh, on that big first climb. It was like, should I go easy? Should I try and not burn as many matches? Or just like, well, if you're going to win a race, you've got to take some risks. You've got to take some chances. You've got to go for it. So... I went for it and I did burn some matches, but it turns out that everyone else is burning a few more than me. So it's always nice when it, it works out that way. Yeah. Yeah. When Petra descended with you, <laughs> I was shocked. <laughs> thought, what just happened here? You don't expect that out of East Africans or Northern Africans. You just don't expect, you don't see that. But it turned out that was a big match for him. Yeah. That was impressive. So um, the, 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 the descent, though, it was it was it was technical to begin with, and then it got really easy striding out, and they could really pound to catch me up, mm. and then they stuck with me on the following technical section. Um, it turns out it did bash up their legs more than mine, but I guess I was holding back a little bit just to try and protect those legs. But that's why I was a little bit a a little bit annoyed that my that they were with me when we got to the bottom of the climb, and b that my legs mm. actually felt like crap. Like from that halfway point, my calves have already started sort of like feeling crappy. And I have had some like pantofasciitis in my left foot and I've been doing a few more calf raises and just stuff generally has been a little bit out of kilter on the 
the calf sort of front. So I guess maybe that's to blame. But it's not very fun when you get halfway through a race and you're like kind of getting that twingy feeling like, well, I could cramp kind of thing. Um, but no, and obviously mm-hmm. as well, they race tactically very differently to Europeans. Possibly they will try and stick at the front. They will try and hold on for as long as possible, whereas sometimes you do need to play it like, OK, I'm a little bit slow on the climb or I can push the descent or hold back a bit on the descent. So my legs aren't completely destroyed when I get to the bottom. Um, but I mean, it worked out tactically really well for me because I could run with them and then they dropped off really easily and then I could go ahead and I already had a really healthy gap built up. So tactically actually like just meant I could run my own race and feed off them a little bit. And then sort of like once I got the gap, there was no looking back. Yeah. Hey, by the way, um, Bracken, you're right. There is a delay on my end. Like when I talk, it takes about three seconds for anybody to respond. So after I'm done, so it might get a little funky. That's all right. We'll figure it out. But anyways, just a heads up. You're right. Yeah. So yeah, we'll figure it out on the back. I don't know why that is because you guys are coming real time, but um, I want to jump in here real quick and say um, about your, about like the confidence thing going into the race and like feeling validated. The first thing I text Bracken after the results came through was your, this is going to sound weird and uh, maybe bringing it on me a little bit, but I thought your result was very validating for guys like me. And that sounds stupid to say, but um, because you dabble in OCR and some people like to poke fun at the quality of, of the athletes. We're not as, as good as some of the other, you know, trail athletes across the world. And there's some truth to that, but at the same time, you've had to earn your victories oftentimes in this sport. And, and then to see that, you know, you went out and won a big, the biggest race of your career is validating that there is some decent competition on the OCR side of things. And at the same time, hearing what you said and then talking about, you know, the confidence issue going in, then knowing, like reading through your blog and hearing, like, I wasn't even feeling that great at points in the middle of the race, yet I still came out on top. It's not like you went out and had a magical day, unless I'm misunderstanding. You went out and, like, grit your teeth down bore down and ended up with the win on a day that at points you were like, this isn't my day. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. But then I think like whenever I've won races, you never run around and go, Oh, that was easy. You always have to dig like pretty deep. I'm just glad that I didn't have to dig quite as deep as OCC because in OCC that's like psychologically scarring and you don't want to do that again for quite a bit of time. So I put that behind me. That was like nearly a year ago. Okay draw a line under it and I was able to go out and like push not as hard but still like keep it together for this race and that means that hopefully I've got some sort of like psychological push left for the rest of the season because you don't really want to burn out of yourself before the end of the year um but I do think like yeah like me winning a race like this I guess validates obstacle racing as a sport but it also validates all the races I've done up till now when I've thought that there's not that good people there or that I've thought like I've won because of a certain set of um, circumstances. So the other like trail running and sky running type victories I've had, I guess now I can actually look back and think, actually, I, I was pretty good. And this sort of like, yeah, backdates uh, the validation of those two. Yeah. And that's tough because if you would have taken eighth or 10th place, you would have believed your own negative script coming into here. Yeah, definitely. I've also like, I've made a lot of like, changes to training and changes to philosophy and just generally been a lot more focused and become like a more stereotypical focused athlete like trying to take that sort of like triathlete type athlete mindset into trail running because there's this sort of like thing where in trail running you're not really allowed to be serious you're meant to go and run in the mountains and you're meant to be all happy and you're meant to 
it's playtime, you know. Whereas when you've got someone saying, no, I'm not going to go and do mm-hmm. that scrambling adventure because I've got a morning session, an evening session planned out. And you do that like weeks and months on end. And you really like you do specific sessions and hill repeats and you do all the boring training and you try and nail everything down. If you've gone through all of that for one race and then you do crap at that race, it like isn't a nice feeling. And it also means that you don't have much trust in yourself, like as a coach coaching yourself. So to have everything like fall into place and be able to have that day on the right day was like it was an amazing feeling. But then I will keep telling myself that I wasn't a Zagama. And that was a big race for like David and for Emmy. And that was three weeks ago. They all gave it absolutely everything at that race. So three weeks later, maybe I got them on a bad day. So, I mean, the the sort of like self-doubt will continue. But like I said, it's sometimes a good thing. A little bit of self-doubt means you just remain hungry. You keep training hard. You don't believe in yourself. So you have to prove it to yourself, which just sort of like makes you find some improvement. Yeah, I guess there's a healthy mix in there. Always be a little bit afraid, but be able to look and say, Davide, Al-Hussein. These, these are people who are at every big race pushing for a podium. And then I don't know if, I mean, I'm sure you have because you're a little closer with him these days, but I took a look at what Killian did in Zagama versus what you did there, and there were some similar time gaps. Now, it's tough to compare the two races, but like you beat Davide by like seven-ish minutes and Killian beat him by seven-ish minutes. So there are, there are data points there that show that I do belong. Yeah, no, definitely. Like, uh, I I do like the gap analysis from Strava, and I use that quite a lot. I actually got the exact same gap in Annecy uh, three weeks ago, which was like 36-kilometer race to at the weekend. Uh, mm-hmm. But the gap was slower for me in this race compared to Zagama. But then, obviously, technicality is the big thing that's missing from the gap analysis. So who knows? But, like, um, it, Killian said to me, like, the weekend before when we did this local race, uh, I would have podiumed at Zagama, but Killian is like a optimist. You know, he's like a really nice guy. He believes in you. Like he can, even if you don't think you deserve mm-hmm. that belief yourself. So like that was a little bit sort of like nice, but then also it's nice that I could then take that and then actually, yeah, think that I did sort of like a good job in the race as well and uh, did him proud. That's interesting because everything I hear, I don't know Killian personally, but everything I hear is that he is the eternal optimist. And it's part of why he's so dominant is his mind is very very strong but he's had a lot of people train with him throughout the years and i don't think he's telling all of them oh yeah you would have been top three at this last race so he he clearly sees something in you yeah it's fun um definitely but that that local race we did it was like it was really fun it was an uphill half marathon and the majority of it was like around eight percent kind of but the last 5k was 10 percent and I actually felt like a lot smoother and a lot nicer running, but I was wearing alpha flies and he was wearing trail trainers for like the majority of the race. But as soon as it kicked up that extra few percent, he was like, he dropped me. But it did feel like we were there, we were running together and it was like a good effort. I think we were like three or four minutes under his record at the top, but then it was a really windy day. So like he seemed pretty happy, but it was really cool to actually have a training race like that with him. We both had big training weeks and then uh, actually have like a little race. Uh, I just think it's going to be extremely hard to beat Killian because psychologically I see him as like big daddy kind of boss man and to beat him would like take a monumental effort both physically and psychologically. So it would be like, yeah, it would be a tough ask because he does seem to be able to, he has that mentality, I will win. And if you have that mentality, then usually you do win or you find something extra. Uh, and that's something I have in other races, especially in obstacle racing, 
But if I was racing someone like Killian, it would it would mean like sort of uh, a lot of psychological preparation, something that like I'm not sure I'm quite ready for yet, but who knows um, during the summer or during the years to come. Well, even that statement, a year or two ago, would you have said, you know, I think it would take a monumental effort to beat Killian or would you have not even considered beating him? Never considered. Like, I think my form, especially since the toll operation and since training with Killian and being in Romsdal and seeing some of the other athletes there and seeing how they train specifically for mountain trail running and that change in philosophy has been like massive. But then also using an altitude tent over the last couple of months, I think that's made a big impact. Um, quite a few changes mm. generally, which have all uh, resulted in what I think is like a massive boost of form. So I think I'm a different athlete now, especially specifically for trail and mountain running than I was four years ago before Corona. Like I am like a different person, I would say. We, uh, we have a lot to unpack here, don't we Bracken? I got about a million questions that we could take. I think what I would like to do, if you're cool with this, John, is um, I want to get to all that, but what we want to do, or at least what I want to do is start back when we talked to you last and give us like an abbreviated version of how we got to today. And then we can dissect the Killian thing and your fitness now and maybe what's coming up. But um, last time we talked to you, you were basically, for, you filled us in on the fact you were dealing with this foot issue for what seemed like years. You finally took the time to get surgery. You um, had finally taken, you know, bit the bullet on that and you were in recovery from that. I don't believe you had raced yet when we had talked to you on this new foot, we'll call it. And then we, we are here today with you now. So like, what has happened since like foot surgery, the progression, like let's walk through that timeline a little bit. Like, uh, yeah. So the foot surgery, foot surgery was in 2020 during Corona. So Corona came, no races. Okay. Let's fix the foot. We got it operated on coming back was like, you know, like a slow stop-start process. You know, you try a bit of running, it hurts, you drop back. Can you tell us what was the, the just to remind people what the surgery was and the foot issue you were coming back from? Yeah, sure. So there's two small kind of bones underneath your, um, kind of just behind your big toe called the sesamoid bones. Uh, they're sort of like, yeah, these tiny little sort of like peas that live under there. And they were both cracked from like running in too thin shoes on too rocky terrain for too many kilometers. So I got like stress fractures or impact like breaks or something. And I, I got that. And then it was about four years until I actually had the operation and got some bone grafts to actually allow them to heal. Uh, so pretty much for the, for the majority of my career, I was running with this pain in my foot. It was never that bad. It was never that good. The more running I did, the more it hurt. So I had to get very clever with training and really sort of like, manage the training and I think that was one of the biggest things which limited how good I could be as a runner and I also lost the love of running like running wasn't fun anymore because it was my job and I had to do it and it hurt but I had to do it enough to get good results and running just generally wasn't wasn't as fun as it was before. Now you and I had surgery at the same time roughly and then I had another surgery afterwards <laughs> and now I just had a third surgery three weeks ago so I'm continually back at this point where you were at where you sit at the very bottom like a little kid and just stare up and think how could I ever get back to where my fitness was I'm older yeah I have more wear and tear on me I've had surgery you're kind of like damaged goods I wonder if I could ever even reclaim what I had and yet now I look at you a year and a half later and you say, I am in different form than I've ever been in in my life. 
And when we last talked, you were like, oh, I'm running in hokas on the road because <laughs> I can't handle running yet. And now you're talking about, well, yeah, I had a, I had an, an Ethiopian or a Kenyan I, I was stuck with on the flat for 6K in the middle of the race, and then I dropped it. Like, it's just life's different for you now. And it's, it's, it's inspiring for me and people like me, but I almost can't even fathom getting back to where I was, let alone getting up. So from the point of I have to use hokas because I can't even run normally to now, like when did the first door open? When did you have your first step forward and you thought that it was actually possible? I think um, I think like the best thing for me was the fact that there was no pressure to get back to racing because Corona was going on. So I could take my time and then it snows during the winter and I can't run. So running was like not really possible once the winter came. So the toe was still a bit bad, but I started skiing and skiing like crazy, uh, skiing a lot, but also skiing a little bit harder than usual. And this is like a big talking point. Zone two has become like the new thing where you push a little bit, but not that much. And to do it with the cross training, the skiing was like a massive boost to the fitness. And it meant I still wasn't destroying the toe. So that means all the running I was doing was really controlled on the treadmill just good quality, good biomechanics, but not sort of like that bad sort of pounding. Like it was really controllable. If it did hurt, I could hop off the treadmill, you know, but there was no option. There wasn't someone saying, do you want to go for a 20K mountain run? It's just not possible because there's so much snow. So that means I was sort of stuck in this really controlled environment all winter. And then when spring came along, it was just this process of trying to slowly, gradually become a runner again and start running trails, start running more downhills and just managing how your legs get so beat up. Uh, and it took a long time. And I didn't actually have my first race until early August. So I actually took the whole spring as well and half the summer to work myself back. Uh, and then I had like one of the, well, I had the best autumn of racing like I've ever had. Um, big boost in fitness, confidence in the toe. Running was fun again. So that means I wanted to do more of it. And I managed to sort of like really manage other niggles and stuff. And my interest score like went through the roof. And by the end of the year, I was ranked third in the world. So um, that sort of like really gradual process and just taking it each day, week, month as it came was great. But I also didn't really know how good I could be or anything. So it was just see what happens just manage the body i'm not trying to get anywhere i'm not trying to reach certain times i'm just trying to generally remain healthy and get fitter uh and that worked really well and then i was by the time i got to spar more champs i was like done i was like Bleh. like that's like it, it was a long season i wasn't psyched i wanted to go back and do another big training block uh i, I got i went to the uk for a week after spartan world champs had uh, sort of an early christmas got home two days later henrietta says Emily and Killian are going to go to a cabin. Do you want to go and train with them? I was like, all right, two days back, hit training. And I've been training ever since, like religiously, like really good quality training, really good recovery. And generally feeling like I'm recovering like better than ever before from Christmas all the way up until now, kind of like I had uh, a couple of deload weeks, which are like natural ones where I had to go away at work and uh, one where I got like a little bit of food poisoning, so a little bit of sickness. But apart from that, it was like the best training period you could possibly imagine, starting with all the skiing, gradually in increasing the running, uh, but still like having really good quality running sessions, especially on the treadmill during the winter, using that training philosophy that I sort of like tweaked and developed from the year before, but now just like putting it on steroids. Um training, training, training. And then it became the point where I was nervous that I felt 
so much better. My times up here were so much better. Like everything was working so well that what if I don't race well? What if I have all this fitness, but I just don't get it out in the race? So that was like the biggest scary thing before this race. Am I going to be able to execute? And am I just going to be able to get all this extra fitness out onto the race course and run as fast as I think I can? And that's exactly what I did, like through, I guess, clever strategy and sort of like using all the experience of being able to push and race with heart and execute a race. All that experience I have over the years of being less fit and now the new fitter me had all that and the extra fitness to hang on on the uphills. So everything just sort of slotted into place and suddenly I won like, yeah, probably what is one of the biggest and most competitive races of I've had. Yeah, I I think the key... The key word there, I think, is is patience. You took your time. You didn't put a timeline on your on your return to racing. I'm sure COVID allowed you that luxury in a sense, but um, you didn't rush the process, did you? And 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 I have a curiosity about just so people can wrap their head around this. You only ran on the treadmill for a period of time in the winter and did most of your quality work uh, skiing. And you didn't touch any sort of real ground for a while. And you felt like um, like that was a good trajectory of your, your process for you. Like, how long was this phase? Because I think a lot of times people rush. As soon as they can run again, they want to get back out there and start pounding race-specific terrain and go murder themselves. And they end up delaying the recovery, right? And obviously, you took the long road, which was the right road. So I just want to hear about that beginning phase like uh, of the whole skiing running bit a little more. Yeah, so uh, coming in that sort of uh, base building period after the operation, it was probably two to three months with like next to no running whatsoever, like zero. Uh, and then and then the treadmill running, especially sort of like five or 10 percent and just good quality sessions uh, on the treadmill, but not running outside at all. Because, I mean, you run outside, the road is sort of like all iced up. It's all uneven. You've got to wear thinnest like studded shoes. It's just not. It's just not good. So you just feel like battered afterwards. With, with the treadmill, it's like less impact. You can put it on a gradient. You can run a really good session. If any pain, you can hop off. It's all like a controlled environment. And I found that was like great for me. But the main thing is the fact I didn't have a choice. Like there was no going outside and running, you know, loving to go out and train. You'd, you'd always be tempted to get, get out there and sort of like pound some trails and stuff. Whereas when they're all snowed down, it's just like, there's no choice. And sometimes in training, it's strange how these things do happen on their own or for a reason. If you force things too much, sometimes you just make yourself problems. It's sometimes good to go with the flow and just sort of use what you have. And I, that did kind of work out for the for the better for me. But then this year, I tried to do at least 30 to 50 kilometers of running per week during, say, January, February. So keep some sort of quality there. But I did a quite a bit more on the flat during the winter this year because I didn't have to have it on the uphill and I also use a shoe like an alpha fly on the treadmill every now and then too to really limit the impact and also using that shoe when you progress to outside makes a big difference because I think as a cross training type athlete you have a big engine but your legs get beat up and that's what ends up slowing you down whereas you put something like an alpha fly on and it's like less impact you run with like a nicer stride and you can do more and it costs you less. So that certainly helps the transfer from the skiing into the running. The big one to manage is the downhill pounding of the legs. So you have to go and pound your legs downhill, let your body recover, try and be patient, don't push it too much, and then go and do it again and again and again. And then actually before the races last year, I was going out doing specific downhill sessions to 
pound the legs or to get them used to turning over. And I actually found, and actually using a different shoe for that, like proved really effective. So come race day for the OCC, the two big things I really noticed was one, when we got to downhill, my legs just went and I was like, why is everyone going so slowly? Like it's just running downhill. My legs just rolled. So that was from those downhill specific sessions and also shifting to a shoe with um, a nice rocker and a carbon plate. So that rocker shape is maintained when you're running downhill. So that means you can just kind of roll down. And those two things meant that I got down quicker than everyone else and my legs were fresher for the next climb. So I think I really managed that sort of transition to the down to the running last year really well. That's what I've been trying to do this year. I mean, this is this is music to my ears. How many uh, trail athletes are running in Alpha Flies for sessions these days, John? <laughs> <laughs> you one of the few? I got I got no idea, but I think I think uh, it's like they say it helps this much, it helps that much. I think it helps a lot, especially for people that have good engines but sort of their legs get battered. Like, and I have a quite an, a natural running stride, apparently. Might, I don't know if it looks that good, but it is quite efficient. And then for someone that doesn't, you, in that shoe, you have to run really well in order to get the benefit. So I think if you have a kind of sloppy running style, it cleans you up almost immediately because you feel when you get the sort of like helping effect and you have to run with kind of like a cleaner running stride. So I think like, that's a massive game-changing thing. Like I know in the studies they have to do this and they have to do that to to work out whether it actually helps. But I like to also think what makes sense. And when I run in those shoes, it makes a lot of sense that they help. And I, I just think they they really do, especially being a trail runner with like an ability to push and having a bigger engine than say a road runner. So then have that ability to get that out on the road is like it's great. All right, so I, I do want to spend a little bit of time on this. I don't want to nerd out on shoes. <laughs> But when I test shoes and I run in shoes, the moment I switch into the Alpha Fly, I drop eight to 10 seconds per mile with less effort. And so I always have this, this internal battle in my mind thinking, should I use the Alpha Fly? Because then I can get more volume of work at a more mechanically efficient stride. And then over time, teach my body to hold that actual stride when I'm not in the Alpha Flies. Or is that a crutch and I take it away and I've practiced a stride I can't keep and I've weakened some of my attachment points because I haven't been pounding them and am I actually training something I can never access on race day? Like once I step onto the trails, I can't use my forward lean bouncy alpha stride anymore. So it doesn't even help me. And I go back and forth on, I should just get as much volume as I can in the alpha fly because it's free engine training. Or do I need to train my mechanics in a real shoe? But it seems as if you believe that you are able to then transfer over to the trail with some sort of specificity. Yeah, so um, I definitely think like, as with anything, it's like you want to have like a balance. You want to use a bit of both. So obviously some trail running and then also when you are going to run on the road, some use the alpha flies. I definitely think like a shoe like that can be used and really does help. And I think. It, especially psychologically like the speed does transfer into more trail running and i think especially on smoother trails there's shoes coming out now which do almost the same thing like obviously not to the same extent but there are shoes being designed with the same foams with a carbon plate but using an extremely different way to the alpha flies which are allowing you to run in a similar way especially like yeah on the less technical terrain so i think like um 
just being able to do more kilometers faster generally helps. And also, like I touched on the whole zone two thing, doing that in the shoes, that is actually more like race pace. So if you can do really fast kilometers, but at a less hard intensity, you can spend a lot more time at sort of like race speeds, which I think is like absolute gold for trail and mountain running. Like the whole 80-20 thing, I've like really started to question it over the past few years and I've realized it's so much more complex than that. That's like such an easy selling tool to people to say, oh, 80-20, it's like a cover or it works. Like it doesn't really work like that. Mm-hmm. And I think um, like that's a big sort of like discussion point in its own. And the shoes sort of like do feature somewhere and allowing you to do more slightly faster kilometers without having the injury risk. Because that's like the big thing. This zone two, you get way more bang for your buck, but you also get more injury risk. But then if you can use the cross training, you can use the fancy shoes, you can manage your body. You can get so much more for your money um, by doing that sort of like slightly faster training and need so much more race pace. So it's like, yeah, it's a, a lot of a lot of different changes in philosophy for me, especially like when it comes to equipment and also how I'm training. Well, that would make sense that if you can use a more race-like stride without the cardiovascular cost, that your stride would last longer in the race because it's more used to those. It has more repetitions at that. Uh, and I want you to clarify, please, if you don't mind, what you mean by zone two. What what scale are you using? Okay. <laughs> Uh, I guess that's a heart rate scale. Like I've, I've, I've like I've never really understood eighty twenty in itself, but I'm starting to realise that it's like it is more complex. And when when people say eighty percent like really slow and twenty percent really fast, it's like that might be really effective for say track running or marathon running. But actually, when it comes to endurance running and being out in the mountains, we spend a hell of a lot of time racing at that middle speed. So if you don't spend any time running at that middle speed, when do you get that sort of like race specific work done and also a lot of people have jobs a lot of people have less time if you're spending a lot of time in like zone one or like much slower training it's like you just don't have time for it and then you can't recover from it anyway so I've just found that doing shorter sessions obviously I do do longer sessions as well but shorter sharper sessions like give you like such a boost for your engine you're getting more endorphins you like you feel free it's like fun to push and that way when you come to doing actual intervals psychologically it's not as hard because you're just pushing a little bit harder than kind of normal so it's not sort of like all intervals tomorrow because like normally you go pretty hard and on interval day you go quite a bit harder like not that much harder so it's like not as hard uh and then also you get way more time to recover like today i did um an hour on the bike like sort of steady zone two pushing but not like interval pace uh and then i did a 45 minute run at the same intensity hour and 45 i got loads of good training and I'll spend the rest of the day kind of chilling out and relaxing. Whereas I could have gone like for two hours slow this morning. Then I have to do two hours slow this evening. And it's kind of like just plodding around, like not good biomechanics. So I feel like I've got like really good training done. And now I can actually recover from it. Um, so I am starting to like really see the fact that there's like a lot more to it. And I definitely think that that 80-20, it might work, say, six weeks before race. Because you really want to specify your fitness. You want to do 20% like race pace or harder. 80% really slow, but that's six weeks before race to top your form. The winter training, like use the full spectrum, like actually a lot less kind of like horribly hard stuff, but like use the full spectrum and get the sort of like the most for your money. You can like, you can go and you can do these sort of like semi hard sessions. And psychologically, I always used to think, oh, this is wasted training. It's crap. This isn't how you're meant to train. Like you're meant to do 80 20. But actually, once you realize, 
oh, this is really good just to push a little bit all the time, it just frees you. And it's just sort of like uplifting because you can go out on this sort of like two, three hour, two hour adventure in the mountains, push a bit hard, have a load of fun, get loads of endorphins and actually then think, oh, that was like a super boost to my engine and then recover from it. Okay. Yeah. So to make sure that you, us, the listeners are on the same page, when you say intervals, what zone would you call that? And what and what like race intensity or pace would you call that? If you're saying uh, push harder on an interval workout, what yeah. zone and pace would that be for you? Race distance and zone. So um, I'll start from the beginning. So the first one is like recovery training or like just sort of like going out and moving and you just sort of like you go out and it's almost like plodding. You're just sort of like loosening up your muscles. You're not really maybe running that mm-hmm. well. So that's sort of like intensity number whatever. And then you've got easy, which is sort of like where you go out three or four hours, still kind of plodding in the mountains, trying to keep your heart rate kind of down, like heart rate zone one or something like that. You know, like easy, long tempo, which is like what most people are saying you should do most of your training at, like easy. And then there's this sort of like middle area where you're not pushing. So it's kind of I call it steady. It's like, you know, you're pushing a little bit, but you can manage it pretty easy for an hour, you know, which is like. You, you're going along like good biomechanics, like you're running well, but you're not sort of thinking, I want this to end within 10 minutes. Uh, so that's sort of, sort of like zone two heart rate. Then like zone three, which I do some intervals, at, especially in the winter, like longer intervals, like 10 to 15 minute intervals. And it's like happy hard. You're pushing. You're happy about it. It's a good pushing. But you want it to end within 10, 15 okay. minutes because it's, it's, it's like it's like a little bit painful. It's happy hard. You know, and then that's that's just underneath okay. your lactate threshold. So you're still kind of in control. And then you go over lactate threshold and it's like hard. It's like not fun hard. After four minutes, you're like, fuck, I really want this to I really want this to finish. I'm on borrowed time. Like, oh, it's like hard, hard. And then after that, it's more like power sprints and it's more like pushing really hard for 20, 30 seconds. So um, example sessions like recovery sessions, 20 to 40 minutes. That's fine. Like get out. Uh, easy sessions or endurance sessions like three to four hours going out and plodding i do that especially in the winter like once or twice a week but not like much more steady sessions like an hour to an hour and a half running pretty good um but still not sort of like anywhere near sort of interval pace and then uh happy hard which is more like 10 to 15 minute intervals and then like more of a psychological break uh, just so you can do another one and you sort of have a, mm. you, you you think you've had a break, but the break doesn't make that much difference. And then more like over threshold intervals, which is like more like four minute intervals or like pushing quite hard, which I use a bit more before, like in the last six weeks before race to get my body used to lactic acid or doing some like lactate buffering work just to get used to producing lactic mm-hmm. acid. So in the winter, especially I do a lot of work in those earlier bands, like uh, the, e- the the recovery, easy, steady and happy hard. And then closer to race season, I start doing a lot more specific work and the harder stuff. So that means I'm not really over threshold that much during the, during the winter. Does it all make sense? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Your zone three is just <laughs> under lactate threshold is where you would do your happy hard. Yeah, so I normally think of lactate threshold being the, the, the bridge between zone three and zone four. So in zone three, kind of in control, happy. Zone four, borrow time. Holy crap. Like, I, I, like this is fine but I don't want it to last very long. Um, it is hard right. because like everyone's got like a different idea with heart rate zones and pacing zones and like seven zones, five zones or where that lactic mm-hmm. threshold sits or anaerobic threshold. Yeah. Aerobic threshold. It's like, 
but that's just how I think of it. And that's sort of like what I've started following. And it does seem to have worked like relatively well so far. I like that description of lactate threshold being the bridge between three and four. So then would you say the aerobic threshold is your bridge between two and three? Does that line up? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Like, um, it's just, it's like such a blurry area because like, especially like with your heart rate zones, <laughs> steady could be like low zone three. It could be like mostly zone two, but then just like the last 10 minutes of a climb, you go into zone three. It's sort of like, it's more about a feeling, you know, steady is like, yeah, I'm going, but like, I'm happy, like really happy, like an hour, hour and 15. Yeah. It's like, it's yeah. good, but I'm pushing a little bit. And then the tempo intervals or the, the zone three intervals is kind of like after 10, 15 minutes, you're like, well, I want this to be done. So actually that race pace that we go for in a three to four hour race, that is really around this kind of like more zone three area. So that means this zone four area, <laughs> I know in a marathon and in track, you you do race pace at that that intensity or that the speeds you run at those intensities but i can really see like the benefit of running a lot more like zone two zone three or steady tempo because that is our race pace when we go out into the mountains and we have to maintain that for like a long time um so this is like a big change in philosophy and one that i've been um seeing a lot of benefits from i just from the first times i ran with killian i'm like you train wrong because you you do a2 i run with emily you train wrong I run with all these great athletes. I'm thinking they train wrong because you're meant to train really slow and really fast. And I think, wait a sec, they're like the best athletes in the world. Like, how can they be training wrong? They're training specifically for mountain trail running. And I'm running with them thinking like, I'm shitter than you, but I know how to train. That's the reason why maybe I should just try what he does. I'm running along with Killian. He goes, I never run this slow. I always push a little bit. And it's like, ah, go for it. Like, let's try. The key is not to get injured because... Zone two, steady, you are more likely to get injured, I think, I guess, especially like if you pound on the road for most of it. So by trail running and doing climbs, you can reduce the injury risk. And by doing the cross training, you can spend a lot more time in steady zone two heart rate without as much injury risk. It's just then you've got to transfer back into running, which has its own injury risks or doing things like you find a ski lift. You do a rep, you take the lift down, you do a rep, you take the lift down. You can get that work done. Um without the injury risk and then when you do go out and do it on the road it's just a lot more effective and you build such a big engine that pushing on the road is like you just feel like there's loads in you it's your legs which are slowing you down and then it's just kind of like a great feeling you just feel like i'm not even pushing like i'm going really fast i'm not even pushing that hard because this is just steady and then you've got tempo and then you've got even harder so you just have a lot more defined bigger range of gears you can use uh, so that means in the race, you get to the race and you're already used to pushing slightly hard all the time. Whereas before I get to the race and I'm, I'm not really used to pushing at all because I've gone really slow or like really hard. So it's like you just learn to push a little bit for a longer period of time, which is the most important thing in these races. The one thing I did want to say is this is a big change in philosophy for me. There's loads of different training philosophies and it's the change, which sometimes is what people need. I spent a lot of time going really slow and really fast. I had some success, but I always felt like it was limiting me. But I changed to a different philosophy and it's had a massive effect. It might be actually the majority of people are pushing a little bit too hard in all their sessions and a change in philosophy is what they need to going really slowly and really fast. So it's like, it is just a change in philosophy. Uh, I do generally think it's a really good philosophy to have, especially if you can choose when you're getting the certain ratios of these intensities in regards to your race, or changing the ratio during the winter training season 
for example, and then like when you move in closer and closer to the race. But it definitely is a change in training philosophy that a lot of people can benefit from. We talked about a while back training the stride you use in a race. That people go out and they use their, their slow, sluggish stride a lot of the time. And then they use their perfect bouncy, prancing forefoot stride when they do their hard intervals. And they get to the race and they use that stride until it's no longer accessible to them. And then they fall back into some stride that they never use. It, they, they can't go slow enough to really use their recovery stride, but their zone five strides no longer accessible. And, and we had talked about the importance of practicing your stride you're going to use under duress in the race. And I, I always kind of think of it as your OCR stride. Like you don't run a pretty stride in OCR. You just run as fast as you can run without lifting your legs up at all because you're tired. And that was the stride. That was the running I saw with you and, uh, um, and the two other gentlemen. I believe it was uh, Patrick Kemboy and, and Petra on that, that connector flattish trail before the final climb and descent. They weren't running pretty anymore. It looked like OCR running. You guys were all running tired, and it was that secondary stride. And what became apparent is that you could sip fuel at that secondary stride, and they couldn't anymore. They were on borrowed time. So I guess I say all of that to agree that the, the weakness of polarized training is that if you don't spend time at race stride, you are missing a very key piece in your development and it sounds like you have bulletproofed your race stride definitely and also like um there's different strides for different gradients and i've really worked on my uphill strides which is completely different because i've got this nice stride where one foot is going in front of the other and that's like a flat running stride because that's the most efficient way when you start going steeper and steeper and steeper your feet start landing next to each other because you haven't got enough energy to go far enough forwards to have your foot land in front of the other one so you have a completely different running stride where your feet are actually running more under your shoulders than crossing over. And my uphill running stride in that sense was completely like crap. So I've also done a lot of specific work working on that sort of like steeper running stride. And also progressive runs are great to develop that sort of like more specific stride because by the time you get to the faster speeds, you're already fatigued and you have to run honestly. You have to run at the speed that you can run at. You can't cheat the system by just doing something really fancy and it's so short that that's like great, great. But I mean, it's actually pretty useless when you come to the actual race. So um, but I definitely think that uphill running stride has been a big one as well because that's something I never really had worked on before. And I got some really good specific sessions, especially one from Killian uh, for working on that. He said, when I did this, I got really good. When Remy did this, he got really good. When someone else did this, he got really good. So I was like, well, I do this too. And I, don't, I wouldn't say I've got really good, but I've got better at least. Mm-hmm. Mm. Why don't we... Um... All right, Kirk, you want to restart? <laughs> yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> what if I... Um, I, I think I'm honestly on like a five to seven second delay. I actually think we've done we've done a good job not talking over each other. <laughs> but, but I mean, usually with a podcast, when this happens, continue talking after like a two second break. And it's like, we need a hand signal or something to say I finished talking. But we're doing pretty good. Oh, well, I just feel like I can't chime in because I come in way late. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure this sounds ridiculous now. I'm, okay, I'm just going to push stop, and then we're going to all come back into the meeting. Right. Does that work? Yeah.
Am I? Am are you hearing me right now? Yes. Yes. Oh, that's really nice. Okay, that's your video is choppy. I was so far. What's that? Your video is choppy, but you're currently you're decently synced up. Oh my god, I had to be like seven seconds behind. It was just like I <laughs> no. was I was up in my own world. It was terrible. Um, I did it as long as I could, and then I just couldn't do it anymore. I'm sorry. Um, can I can I piggyback one thing on that conversation? I wanted to bring that whole uh, heart rate training, how you approach your training thing, full mm-hmm. circle. Um, John, you often uh, label something on your Strava very specific. I follow you on there, or very vague, sorry. But all it says is race specific. <laughs> like your workout, yeah. you're like you'll have like a three hour run in the mountains, and it just says race specific. And I'm like, what the hell does race specific mean? Yeah. When you when you talk about all these, like your happy heart and all this, like what what are you implying when you say race specific? So I've made a training app. And within the training app, uh, there's session types and each session type has its own training intensity. So I don't really mind what you do in a week as long as you spend the right amount of time or the right ratio of time in each session type. So what you do is you put in when your race is, you get given some uh, a season plan and you get this sort of session type plan that's based on what training phase you're in and how much time you have to train in the week. Because if you have three hours a week, the the ratio of these different intensities is going to be different if you have 20 hours in a week so you put those two things in uh and you get your week built and you get these session types plan this session type plan and you can move them around onto whatever days you want because again there's a lot of flexibility when you click on one of those session types you get a list of example sessions like all my favorite sessions so that means you click on a steady session there's a steady cross training there's a steady road run a steady trail run there's like options but it's the actual intensity, which is the important thing. Um, and then once you get closer to a race, those sessions, there's a lot like less choice because the sessions have to be more specific for the race and more sort of like, um, yeah, like just there is less options so you can be in the best shape possible. So those that, that what I'm putting on Strava is the those session type labels. So in the winter, there's a lot of uh, uh, recovery, steady, endurance uh leg strength core strength stuff like that uh and tempo because that's the zone three interval so that's sort of like base building training in the winter and then as we get into sharpening training closer to the event you've got more things like leg conditioning uh race specific hard or lactate tolerance and speed so you've got like different uh types of sessions to peak your form and to get you prepared specifically for that race so when i put down race specific it's a um it's a it's an intensity pretty much uh, or yeah, a session type and then within that within the app you'll have like a choice of three or four different sessions that will give you that same training intensity uh, and you get to choose which one you want. There are right answers and there where well, there are right choices and wrong choices. No, not really. There's more like better choices and worse choices. So they say like three weeks out from a race, do a race simulation three quarters distance or something like that or half distance or there's like progressive trail laps like there's a lot of different options within each one of those okay so race specific like what would you be working zone wise or like like what intensity when you say race specific what do you mean by that like as far as intensity goes so it's more a feeling so uh race specific is more like you're pushing as hard as you want to do in the race in the a similar terrain to the race at a similar in a similar climate like everything you try to replicate the race you should use the same night before meal you use the same breakfast you use the same gels you see you use the same racing strategy or fueling strategy and within all these workouts we have different progressions too um within the race uh, specific session type 
we have a race simulation, which is where you're simulating the race. And then within that, we have two progressions, a half distance and a two thirds distance. So we do cap it at X amount of time. So if you're training for UTMB, it's pretty stupid to go out for like a 15 hour run three weeks before. But then this isn't as good a system for ultra yet with more work between the sort of like two to 10 hour mark. But that's so I'm really using the sort of like feeling of how it's going to feel in the race. And if it's a six hour race, that intensity will be slightly different to if it's a two hour race. Obviously, if I'm doing a half race simulation for a two hour race, I'm going to be pushing quite a bit harder than in the six hour um, race simulation for like three or four hours. Say. That makes sense. Okay. Yep. It's, it's pretty like you build a big engine in the winter and then it's kind of like bulletproof to then just do a race simulation where you run a shorter distance exactly how you want to run in the race. So your body isn't, um, isn't uh, surprised when you get to race day, you practice everything you do exactly how you do. And that's kind of like just a simple system I've used to prepare myself because like if I can do two thirds or half distance, say like in the last eight weeks training block before race, I, know that on a good day i should be able to do it for the full race distance come race day the hard thing is to replicate everything and also to limit the injury risk because you are going to be pounding downhill a lot more but your legs will get used to pounding downhill you'll get used to absorbing gels it's also like gut training because you're taking the same amount of gels in the same uh quantities that you will be doing in the race just for a shorter distance so you are training everything and it, you find out what's wrong like is my race vest rubbing here or do i have this problem did i that breakfast repeated on me like you find out all the stuff so it's just kind of like a dry run which i think probably people do a little bit too little in training because it's just kind of like this really fancy four minute interval complex type thing is going to get me in great shape actually when you get to the race you ain't running four minute intervals you're going to run four minutes and your body's going to say why why couldn't i have a break like what well, we normally have a rest now whereas like this is like a full-on session where you replicate everything so your body isn't surprised I would have guessed that early in your career, you were the athlete who didn't test out multiple pieces of kit or strategy because I always used to look at you and Hobie Call and have a little bit of jealousy because you wore the same shoes, same shorts, same shirt for every race you showed up to, no matter what the distance was. And I always used to think, man, I wish like Hobie, I could just run in those Nike Waffle XCs for a one mile through a 50K and it didn't matter. His stride never changed. I looked at you and you, you wore the same Innovates initially <laughs> for the same. And then you switched to IROC. You wore the IROCs for hundreds of kilometers of training and for for your your short course and for ultradis. It didn't matter. I think you wore them at World's Toughest one year. Like you just wore the same thing for everything. And I was jealous of that, but I also thought... I wonder if he just wears what he knows and doesn't even explore it. But now it sounds like you've evolved to the next stage, which is every little piece of your kit's there for a reason. Yeah, I think it, I think it's like that with everything now, especially like having Henrietta. She will read up on stuff. She will research stuff. She is like the person that is like looking for how to professionalize everything. And that just goes on to me. Mm -hmm. And now, like, I always used to be that person that was like, didn't really care and stuff. But if you do want to win these big races, you need to find all the little things and find all those little pieces of the puzzle and put them all together. I used to concentrate on like the biggest ones, but actually was even probably doing those wrong, like from what I've learned now. But I certainly am now the person that is sort of like trying to work on everything. But obviously the biggest piece of the puzzle the most, but I've even started thinking about my diet more. I mean, 
my god like uh i'm still trying to i am trying to like find all those little <laughs> ways to improve you know yeah am i on a delay again no uh, okay a little bit uh, what i realize ha is happening is i'm recording vi i'm recording video now too i didn't know that's a new option not that we're going to use it but i think it's slowing the system down oh. it says it's recording video anyways interesting you can turn um, that off well, what happens if I, you turn it off i don't i'd have to leave again to do it oh okay you're good now. I want to ask you one real, real thing on the topic that we're talking about here. Okay, cool. Um, so with all this, like these realizations you've had with your training, um, like how you kind of look at things differently now than before, like if you had to just bullet point it, like clean it up for us, like the main differences in your training philosophies pre-foot surgery and now post-foot surgery. Oh, that's a good question. What would be like the big bullet point differences in your training philosophies? How have they morphed? pre and post surgery so i think pre pre post uh, pre pre surgery pre foot injury i was the sort of person that was just going out and doing random crap all the time which like obviously worked and it was a lot of fun um but like not that professional so then i started trying to train a lot more like 80 20 a lot slower and then do like harder sessions um and then after the foot surgery, now it's like more full spectrum, like trying to have the right ratio at the right time of year and getting a bit more geeky with exactly like which gear I'm in and certainly using those middle points. So that so using more zone two with this steady is certainly a big change in philosophy. Uh, I've also found skiing. So a lot more cross training whilst I had the foot injury. And that's helped no end because I can do so much training. Like I've done pretty much since Christmas between 10 and 15,000 meters of climb per week. And the only reason I can do that religiously like, and have that continuity is because of the skiing, which helps so much. So you just did the math. <laughs> um, so yeah. Yeah, quantity yeah. because of the skiing, the, 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 yeah, the, um, the skiing with the, the quantity with the cross training. So that's been great. More zone two, uh, a slight change of diet and trying to lose a little bit of weight before trail races, before I never used to think about weight whatsoever. And it's a taboo subject. You're not allowed to say the lighter you are, the faster you run. But that's that is like basic physics. As long as you can stay healthy and you can do it at the right times, and it doesn't affect other stuff. I I generally think that men can do this easier than females because females can do it for a time. But there's a lot more other hormone stuff, and it seems like a really difficult thing to do and a really like tough subject to talk about. But if you are skinnier, you go faster. Like that is what it comes down to. But I have tried to like be my normal weight in the winter and then before a race I do try and drop weight but I don't like I'm not religiously trying to do it I'm just trying to change some small things in my diet just to clean it up a little bit and sort of like try and help the process along so during the winter I eat like probably a kilogram of cheese and a kilogram of jam per week uh and I now in the last six weeks or four weeks at least I haven't had any jam except for just before a session or during a session so I'm generally talking about sugar and jams, like a good example, but don't eat sugar, especially don't drink sugar unless it's five minutes before the session starts. Because even like fueling, I found for a session, start fueling 30 minutes before a session, I'm already getting a down by the time I've started actually telling my body that I need that sugar. So that's like kind of a change in trying to eat sugar generally less, but then five minutes before this steady session, bang two jam sandwiches or do my warm-up just before I start my intervals, bang a massive spoonful of honey and you'll be running like crazy good and you've got less injury risk because you're fueling the session better. So that was a big difference sort of like dietary. And also I guess 
I did start doing a slightly different... Wait, you can eat two sandwiches five minutes before a session? Your gut's <laughs> yeah, that yeah. good now? I, 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 I get, like, uh, less... I, I guess it depends on the intervals. Like, if uh, on the session, if it's going to be steady or under, then it's fine. Uh, if it's going to be um, intervals, like tempo or hard, then I probably will have a much bigger gap or take something like a gel or, like, yeah, honey or some maple syrup or something, you know, something sugary, which is sort of like more digestible. Um, and also I started with a very different uh, carb loading or glucose loading, or whatever you want to call it, system last year uh, before Spartan Euros, actually. I found like, OK, you're meant to keep your glucose levels kind of generally up through the whole day so you can absorb it or you can like put it in your muscles or whatever. But my God, whenever you eat, it spikes and then you stop eating and it goes down. And it's like, oh, you're meant to sip this Mortin, for example. And then that will like carb load you. You don't sip this stuff like within two hours, it's gone. So I set an alarm on my watch and I ate like two Haribos or a bit of cookie or a sip of um, pineapple juice or something every 15 minutes all day the day before race. So and then just eat normal meals, like no massive pasta dish the night before the race to sort of like make all your guts all gluey and stuff. So that was like a really strange thing that I found seemed to have really worked. So this like really weird eat two Haribos every 15 minutes for like the Wait, what was yeah. So to interrupt then, and I know again I'm on a delay, so we'll just deal with it. But uh, <laughs> so you're you're munching like all day, you're keeping your blood sugar levels up. I went through a period of time this last fall where I checked my blood sugar before after meals in the middle. I was curious. I was pricking my finger um, and the swings were wild, like just astronomically yeah. wild up and down. Um, so you're so you're thinking like if we never let our blood sugar levels dip too far, we're just kind of staying primed and ready and saturated, even if I'm just nibbling all day. So you're grazing all day, avoiding big meals, and you just find that that translates better to like good cellular energy the next day. Is that what I'm understanding? Yeah, I know. I also I do eat like maybe bigger meals or just more normal meals, more balanced meals. But then I'm getting sort of like the carbs through the sort of like very uh, efficient way of doing it because like you can just eat a gummy bear practically. Uh, but it is pretty tough on your stomach. But I found it's worked. Like I don't know. Like maybe it's a placebo, but I'm. I've never had bad legs when I've done it the next day and I've always performed better than I think. Uh, so it is like an interesting thing. Nothing, nothing, none of this is like scientifically backed. This is just me eating some Haribo the day before a race. Um, and also maybe, I don't know, it's gut training. Like maybe your body's getting used to absorbing all this crap because the next day you're going to. Like your dentist is going to hate you, probably your doctor as well. But then again, these races, they're not healthy. And to be under fueled is unhealthy in the races anyway. So for this smaller period of time, it's healthier to be unhealthy because like to be empty is like more unhealthy in my mind. So it's like that's that's a bit of a big bullet point. But yeah, like the fueling and the sort of thinking about fueling definitely has changed. And before I always used to be 67 kilos, no matter what. Now when I race, I'm more like 64, 65, maybe. I don't know. I haven't weighed myself in three weeks but like that's what i can imagine and i think that does make a big difference well john i have i have a race tomorrow and you haven't seen me eat anything since we started recording this podcast so do i need to go grab a chocolate bar or something am i am i selling myself short here john as long as it's in small bites like this chocolate bar like you could make that last two hours 
and then you're going to get less spike, and it's just going to be the sort of like gradually tapping into. I don't the have system. that sort of self control, John. <laughs> exactly, but then that's why the what the watch. So you're treating it like an IV. <laughs> well, it's I'm just sure dripping into I mean, you all day. I'm not sure if a uh, Harry Bow IV really sort of like <laughs> is the best. Um, the best. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. Not an actual IV. You're treating it like an IV. Yeah, practically. Yeah. <laughs> you're just taking a steady drip all day. Exactly. You do get a little bit sick of the sweet stuff, but then, like, I mean, you've not been eating cookies and and donuts and crap for like a long time. This one day, you get to like eat a little bit of donut every fifteen minutes all day if you wanted to, or a little bit of cookie or some tropical um, juice or something like that, or that Morton if you want to be really boring. Sip on your Morton all day. Don't <laughs> sip on it for two hours, then go. Oh, it's empty. Like uh, it is meant to be sipped. Is like uh, a sip. You know, it's not that much, but all of us just say like, oh, cookie, warm, and it's all gone, and that's just what happens. Uh, but to try and like space it out a lot more methodically uh i did have peter engdahl he, he, he did i think he ate harry every 20 minutes all day last wednesday before the 90k uh in mont blanc which got cancelled so he'd he'd completely like <laughs> loaded himself up doing this all day and then the race was cancelled and he managed to get into another race two days later but i can't believe what would actually what your body goes through if he doesn't actually get to use all this stuff that you've stuffed into it um but yeah, so we've got change in philosophy, more zone two. More, more, more zone two. We've got the change in diet. I had another one, didn't I? That I stuck in there, maybe. More cross-training. This year, so I've always raced terribly at altitude. Altitude sucks. I get up there psychologically, physically, everything sucks. Um, altitude tents just became legal in Norway. I could always use one because I'm not actually Norwegian, but then again, I want to follow the rules because I live in the country. I got an altitude tent uh, sort of around January time. I actually sleep better in the altitude tent because uh, firstly, like I'm not sleeping next to my wife. So there's no one to disturb me. There's no temperature fluctuations because the machine is down in the cellar. It's just the same temperatured air all the time. You're in like a protective plastic bubble. So like not much sound or anything like that. And I get really bad hay fever uh, and there's a filter on the thing. So I think I'm getting less hay fever symptoms. So I'm actually, my blood oxygen is down more like on 89, 90, 91 but I'm sleeping better than if I was just sleeping normally in a bed. So I'm getting sort of like benefit from actually you would, some people would probably say that it doesn't work. I don't know. Like for me, I found, I think it does work. And especially psychologically, then when I arrive at altitude, I think sleeping at two and a half thousand meters for the last two months uh, for 10 hours a night must do something. So I think like for me, it does work and I am actually sleeping better as well. So that's like been a big change, especially this year. Yeah, I am. Um, I actually got an altitude tent set up at my house uh, two years ago, three years ago. I don't know, Bracken, if I told you about this. I covered my whole bed. I don't know what you did, John. So I had like a sleeping palace. Me and my girlfriend could both sleep in there. Um, but there was like, it's like people think that an altitude tent, at least in my my understanding just like sucks some of the oxygen out of the air. And so you have thinner <laughs> oxygen, but really what it does is it's a chemical process in the machine that like chemically treats the air and then blows it into your tent. At least what I had hypoxico is the brand, but there was like a byproduct, like a chemical smell that gave me the worst headaches and it wasn't altitude. It was like, so I ended up sleeping in it for three nights and woke up with pounding headaches every morning. And I was like, I can't mm. do it. You didn't, do you experience any of that? Like any smell or chemical problem with it? 
No smell whatsoever. I've got a, a, a unit from Higher Peak and I've got it actually down in the cellar. So there's a whole floor between me and it and the cellar is already like kind of cool. And I've got like a bunch of tubing bringing there up and then blows into the tent, which is over the whole bed. But one person in there, there's enough air coming through from this machine. It almost feels like it's nice, fresh air because a Norwegian's especially me now, I have to have all the windows open. I have to have loads of fresh air when I sleep. Otherwise I get a headache. Two people in there. My God, it's like the worst night's sleep of your life. It's so hot. It's like stuffy. It's like disgusting. So the one night that Henrietta tried to mm. sleep in the tent with me was like no go, horrible. So that's like one cause, like not having just enough fresh air. And the So my problem was I let the lady sleep with me. Definitely, yeah. And also if she farts, it's like game over. It's terrible. You've got to get out of that thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so and then the second one can also be you've got to, <laughs> you got to, you got to gradually build yourself into this. Like you can't just jump in there and sleep at two and a half thousand meters. It's not nice. So starting at just like 800 or a thousand meters, see how you go Just screw the altitude down. up. Yeah. Like gradually. And then just sort of see how you sleep. So I had one of those finger things. I never tried to have it beneath 90 really is a good rule of thumb, but don't just jump in there, bang it on 5,000 meters and say like, here we go. We're going up Everest um just really try and gradually work it in there and if you do have a big interval session or if you have a training race or if you're going to go for a run with Killian don't sleep in it the night before and then maybe you'll sort of like feel a bit fresher waking up so you can almost use it if you have a big session don't sleep in it like the night after if you want extra recovery or if you just feel generally fatigued like don't sleep in there and then keep it like a rolling thing um for like two three months don't try and get everything done in like the month before the race for example and i think it can be really like a great tool uh and like i said i've actually slept better in there uh than i do usually so that's been that's been like great wow hmm. you're just all tech now yeah carbon shoes altitude yeah. tent alpha flies haribos <laughs> haribo yeah <laughs> No, so uh, you. I guess you just have to uh, go to town a little bit and find everything. Like when you look at some of the triathletes, they've got like temperature sensors shoved up their bum. I'm still not there. So I think like I am trying to sort of like take steps and try and use tools, which I think could work really well. And then also obviously put in all the effort, put in like these steady sessions. It's not easy if you're going to do two in a day to go out and do two hours steady in the morning and then rest up and two hours steady in the evening like it's not it's this generally pushing is is tough and there's a lot of hard work that goes into it but then i am also embracing technology and embracing like different stuff which should help along the way because like otherwise normally it does mean that you can just get injured and um there are certain things you can use to help reduce that injury risk and some of them are sort of new tech yeah yeah all right you mentioned early on specific downhill training work that you have to do coming off of skiing, getting ready for work. And then later on, you talked about leg building and leg conditioning before races. And you are known as one of the best descenders in whichever race series you enter. And you're also known as someone like Killian who does not run downhill in the winter. So I'm very, very curious on your frequency and type of downhill leg building that you have found gives you the ability to descend hard for the entire race. And we talked with Danny Moreno about some of this stuff as well, how the great descenders are not much different than the poor descenders. You can all do it for one descent. 
It's can you do it after the next climb and descent and then the next climb and descent. And you seem to always be able to do that. Like when your calves get twingy, you can still do it and other people can't. Yeah, that's um, the whole twingy thing. Also, I'm, I'm relatively fortunate that I don't get cramped that much. And some people get cramped a lot more. So maybe that's like a gene thing. But when I get twingy calves, it means most people would probably be like in a ball of tears having cramp. So that's like one thing to note. Like maybe I've got like better like non-cramping genes. Who knows? Uh, but definitely there is a mm-hmm. process to conditioning your legs to the downhill running. But actually within the app, when you get to the last uh, six, eight weeks before a race, you enter sharpening phase, then you get this leg conditioning. So you stop doing leg strength and start doing leg conditioning in, instead, which is a lot more specific to racing. We have uphill leg conditioning, where I was working on that uphill running stride. We've got carrying conditioning, where you work on conditioning yourself to be able to carry and then drop things, then run, and then pick things up again and run. Um, and we've got downhill leg conditioning. I think there's one or two more other ones in there, but downhill leg conditioning. So an example for the downhill leg conditioning workout, it's just practically, it's a process that starts way before you end up doing that specific session where you just end up hammering down and trying to screw up your legs. So you just run hardish down a trail. So again, this is maybe going back to this zone two, you don't just plod down in between your intervals. You run down with purpose, you know, good biomechanics. You know your legs are going to be stiff, but you know you're going to take a rest day the next day, or you know you're going to ice them or use your terror gun, or you're going to screw them up a bit and they're going to hurt, but you're not going to plan to do 2,000 meters. This is the first session after winter. You're just going to do 500 meters downhill, 300 meters downhill. Just make them hurt that little bit, but not too much. And then the next week, maybe you can manage 500, maybe you can manage 600. The next week after that, like, you can gradually manage more and more. And there's a great session I've done a lot with Killian, which he really likes, where you do uphill intervals, then you do a bunch of flat intervals, then you do a bunch more uphill intervals. And that's just generally good leg conditioning to get you used to going up, going down, and then actually getting a good running stride going. And then after the good running stride, going up again and going down again. So we've got a great hill that melts out first. It's 700 meters of climb. He'd maybe do like two reps, then some like four minute intervals, six minute intervals or 10 minute intervals on the flat on the road, and then another like climb maybe. And you can just play with breaking it up. Like that's the great thing about Killian. He doesn't really care about the individual session as long as he gets the right kind of training stimulus done. So we could just we could just meet, mm-hmm. not have any plan. What are you doing? Oh, I was going to run up twice, then do some four minutes or something, then run up one more time. Yeah, okay, I join. Or if I say oh, I'm going to break the climb up into this, and then I'm going to do ten minutes. Oh yeah, I join. Like it doesn't matter. So that is a really nice specific session to do to condition the legs. But also, especially last year before OCC, I would go out and I would do specific downhill running, find like a five to 10 percent downhill, put on the biggest, cushiest shoes I have and just let my legs roll. Um, and I think within the session like we have some different progressions, but the one I like, which is where you just do, say, three laps uh, of a hill. And on each lap, you go slightly harder. So it's like a progressive effort and you go a bit harder on the downhill as well. And you just let your legs go. And that's sort of like really about leg speed and just sort of like getting that downhill running stride going. Uh, And I did that like a bunch last year. and I'll be doing a bunch more, but that's like the most injury risk sessions you could do. So you go into it thinking, Mm -hmm. I have this niggle, I have that niggle. If this hurts, if that hurts, what are the implications of doing this session? Is it worth it? Like there's a lot of different stuff to think about. So I did less of it now because I've had a little bit of plantar fasciitis. So that's why when I got to Chamonix, I started hammering downhill like crazy just to sort of try and hammer my legs. 
at least 10 days before the race and not have them affected for the race. So that was on my mind. Like, will I be able to hammer down that, that descent for sets and then run afterwards? And I was generally thinking very specifically about getting my legs in the right condition so I could do, do just that. How far out from a race do you do your last downhill damage session? Oh, it's actually, to be honest, like, um, like we're, we're getting like really specific now because obviously I follow the app. I use the app religiously, but I also put my own spin on things okay. and I have my own small philosophies and changing for certain races. And also I'm experimenting so then I can improve the app. But maybe 10 days before I can do like a really hard downhill session. I can look at the time. I can even do the actual descent. I did it, uh, the actual that descent, maybe 10 days before. But then um, I have to let my legs recover, obviously. But then I also want to do some harder downhill running, even like three, four days out to maintain that sort of stiffness or maintain that ability. If my legs are super fresh come rest day, like amazingly fresh, the first downhill, they're going to be like completely destroyed, or at least maybe psychologically, this is what I'm thinking. So even three or four days out, I'll still try and go down a relatively, relatively good effort or just sort of like flow down and not protect my legs overly but i think that really works if you do have this rest period so it's really nice to do some good training like especially uphill and downhill have some rest days really recover and then before the race have another smaller period where you are adding some stiffness back into your legs and not being fully tapered or fully rested but then still hitting the start line which is sort of just the right combination for you because we train all through the year and we, we run relatively well. So then when you turn up to the race and you feel 100% fresh, like it's kind of alien. So you almost want to have a little bit of familiarity uh, with that sort of like stiffness in those legs. So I do do some downhill running um, in the days before as well. How much total time do you think you'd spend on like a Wednesday before a Saturday race? Are you talking like a 20-minute session or maybe like one six-minute descent? Oh, we'd have to look at Strava. Uh, I think like three days before or four days before I did the last descent and I didn't do it hard. I did, but I still sort of like went down well, but I didn't do it hard, hard. Uh, but we could have a look back through Strava. So you're you doing could... a decent amount. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, but then again, I'm used to it. Like this, I've had such a good training block all the way from Christmas through till now. So consistent. I know exactly how long mm -hmm. it takes me to recover from X amount of sessions and stuff. I had the little thing with the foot in the last two weeks, but I felt like I, I'd almost made it because I did the majority of the training. You actually need to rest up more in the last two weeks. So like I was sort of more in control in that sense. And I've done these downhill sessions and I kind of understand how much I can take and how I'll feel at X amount of time after that. Yeah. You brought up, uh, you brought up Killian a number of times now, and we're not talking Robert Killian. Uh, okay. For those people <laughs> who are OCR biased, we're talking Killian Jornet. <laughs> Um, for those of you wondering, um, and I have two follow-up questions with you and Killian, Killian Jornet. That would be, uh, one, how did you two get linked up? And then two, what are the, like, again, like bullet point for me, like the biggest things you've learned from him. Like you used a great example of his interval workout going uphill, doing some flat stuff, going back uphill, for example. Like what are the biggest thing? I mean, I have his book sitting on my treadmill for like boring treadmill sessions, right? Um, yep. training for the uphill athletes so like i personally want to know one how you got linked up two like what are the biggest things you've learned from him um so how how we linked up was corona came we were at henrietta's parents cabin they said you're not allowed in the cabins so we have to go home we'd say okay it's winter we have to go to bergen there's no snow there 
it's a city. We don't really want to live there. So we drive to Romstad. So we stay two weeks in Romstad and then we rent a place, sell our place in Bergen and then we buy a house. So I'm now living in Romstad and I've got great skiing. I've got great bouldering, climbing, scrambling, great trail running in the summer. Like it's like the biggest playground It's also filled with amazing athletes. Like obviously Emily and Killian are two of the biggest that spring to mind. Also Johanna, Ida Nilsson, Sebastian Krugvig. He only lives like an hour away. So like it's just sort of like a great little place. You could be on your like second session of the day, three weeks into our training block. Oh my God, I don't know if I want to do this. You just see Ida out there skiing away. And she's just going for it. And it's like, oh, she's doing it. It's not that bad. I'll go and do it. Like you're kind of in it together. And I think that sort of like kind of community really does help because it it can suck. And it's not like fun all the time, but you see these people out doing it as well. So it makes it easier for you. And that's the other thing I learned as soon as I got there was the fact that there's this sort of like romantic way of training and, and being on Instagram and stuff. Uh, like Killian, I've heard him say on films, I think, oh, I don't train for specific races. Uh, maybe the week before I do a few sessions, but, you know, I just train and go in the mountains. It's like, that's bullshit. Like he trains. He trains scientifically. He trains really well. <laughs> He is like an incredible athlete. I like he's hearing that. All the boxes. He he is like very. He's he's like a, he's looking at all the numbers. Like his race planning Excel spreadsheet is incredible. Like he is ticking all the boxes, and it's not just going and having fun. He does have fun in the mountains. He does love to go out and train, but he's also doing the same reps at the same hills and checking his watch every time he does it. So that was like one thing. It was like he is putting in the work. I need to put in the work as well. And the fact that he's putting in more than me makes the amount I'm doing not seem that bad, which is generally more than most other people. So yes, he's training really specifically and it's okay for me as an athlete to train specifically as well. I shouldn't feel embarrassed that I want to go and do some hill reps on a sunny day instead of going for like a nice plod in the flowery meadows. Like it's okay to be focused. and It's okay to have goals and go out and try and achieve them by doing relatively boring training. Um, as opposed to sort of like going and having that, that fun. So that was like a big one. Uh, and also the zone two thing, the sort of like pushing a little bit all the time. That was the biggest one because it was like, he's pushing like skiing. He's so much faster than everyone there anyway, including me, but he's also pushing a little bit all the time. So it's like, wow, like obviously his training philosophy has changed. Maybe it changed since when he got the kids because now he has less time. So he has to push a bit more, but he's generally like pushing that little bit all the time which is like so different to how I was training. And that's what's made the biggest difference to mine. Um, another one, the last one maybe, which I haven't really adopted is the fueling. Killian is very strange in the fact that he can go for a long time without eating anything and still put out good, good uh, numbers. Like he, he trains well, empty, but I, he's done it for like so many years. He's like really in tune with his body. He, um, He's good at it. I'm not like I can't go out and do five hours steady on the skis doing four, four and a half thousand meters and only eat like half a Snickers bar or nothing. Like that's not that's not me. I have to fuel sessions. And that's just what I found because that enables me to recover from those sessions. So, um, yeah, he goes out and he does sessions completely empty, but also he will have gels in training. It's not always just empty and Snickers. You know, you follow Instagram, you think, oh, Killian eats absolutely nothing. So no. He don't. He will pop a couple of gels during a session if we're out together. Like he will do that. So there's this sort of like Instagram 
uh, image and there's also like the reality and it's been great to sort of like see the reality because then I can actually like feel better about what I'm doing to try and achieve my goals um, and maybe one more also like he is adamant that if he thinks he can do it he will do it like last year with these VK times he goes he does like was it just under 30 minutes or just over 30 minutes but he, he, he thinks he can do more he's already tried two or three times he goes again, he goes again. The third time he does like 28.30 or something stupid. But it's just because he believed he could do it. And that belief is like really important just to be stubborn enough to think I can do it. Like it will just take enough training or the right combination of training enough time and he will be able to. So that's kind of like uplifting. You know, you kind of start believing in yourself a little bit more if you just see someone believing in them themselves. I wonder how many athletes out there young or developing or new to the sport have been intentionally misled into oh, i can just play in the mountains because killian gets away with it not knowing that he's really a, a scientist behind the scenes a lot like i i mean yeah i've i i think i could have been a lot better a lot earlier had i known what i know now because of people like killian i don't want to give him all the credit but also people like henrietta my wife who is like taken training philosophies and made them digestible and then explain them to me and we, or we just discuss it together and create our own training philosophy because no we don't follow exactly what Killian does uh we have our own training philosophy but we've developed that through trial and error and also studying other athletes and reading books like uphill athlete actually a lot of it is in uphill athlete it's just you need to read between lines and you need to actually go out and do the sessions so one of those uphill leg conditioning sessions is the fast feet and bounding which Killian's posted about, I think, three times on Instagram in the past three years, at least once every spring. It's in Uphill Athlete. I just, and whenever I talk to people about it, they think it's a secret that Killian gave me personally. But it's like, no, he keeps telling me, telling people about it. They're just not going out and doing it. And if you go out and do it, how we're saying to do it, it will work. And if you do it like every week for six weeks, you will see results. It's just people need to go out and actually do it um and that's the that's the most important thing because you're not going to like get the results from doing like 20 seconds of this stuff like once it takes like doing more of it and for longer periods and then do it for another year and then another year like i'm seeing the benefits now from the training philosophy i was implementing last year so i'm just hoping that i can just maintain this uh continuity and then go through and do another year next year and just keep keep going for it because it does take time but you need to believe that it will work um, I'm waiting to jump in. All right. I have my chance again. You got your chance. I got my chance. Um, as far as like moving to like, we could just looking at the clock here and I want to be respectful, like going another 15 minutes or so, but, um, <laughs> if we can, but I want to just touch on like, okay, we got to get to present day with like your big win this last weekend, which we touched on in the beginning. Um, and and understanding, like, I think just sticking with, like, the bullet point sort of questions I'm asking you, like, the like obviously you have the big, the best fitness you've had up to date. You haven't been afraid of basically telling that to us. Um, what, like, if we were to bullet point again the few things, like, would it just be consistency over time? Would it be the ability to run more now that you don't have two stress fractures in your foot? Would it be, obviously, it's a combination of a number of things, but, like, I would consider this not knowing you very well, like some sort of a breakthrough, like you've had big races, you've had big wins, but on this stage, on this level, in my eyes, this is number one so far. So like, what would be the key factors leading up into this, this past weekend's race that really led to this win? 
you really had to break it down for us. I think I, I definitely agree that like uh, this is like one of the biggest things I've done. Like it's not called a world championships, but for me to race some of these guys, I haven't really raced before. And if I have raced them, it's been in a slightly longer distance, which then sort of like, you know, people say, oh, but whatever, what about marathon distance? So I do really feel like I did myself, uh, I did myself justice, but it has been almost a week now. So I'm already starting to think about the fact that maybe they just had a bad day. And we'll see. Uh, so I'm going to have to obviously prove to myself again. But I, I do think I did relatively well. And I do think I really prepared specifically for this race. But it was a culmination of everything I've learned. But what you said about like running more and the consistency, they're the same thing. Like just having consistency over a two year period of having a good training philosophy has done absolute wonders. Uh, so just that having that consistency so you, you're not fighting fires. Three weeks out before a race, you're like, oh, crap. You're like, I've prepared for this. I've been through every training phase. I'm arriving like as fit as I can be. All I need to do now is do what I've already done in training for a bit longer. Um, and then it can't go that bad. It's just that consistency is so difficult to get, especially if you're not a full-time athlete. And if you are a full-time athlete, it's almost harder because you give yourself injuries. And it's so easy to do too much or to go, oh, I'll just run through this needle. It'll be fine and keep doing that. But to not get those injuries so you can maintain that consistency is by far like it, it sounds like really simple. Just do it more and you'll become better. But it's so hard to do. Uh, and that's something that I've really actually managed to do. But I have made um, I have made sacrifices like last year before OCC, I didn't go to my sister's wedding. I've practically almost stopped doing obstacle racing. I've uh, become a boring athlete who won't go for a slow, nice run in the meadows and mountains to do hill reps and stuff. So there are sacrifices there, but they have been uh, necessary to get to where I am. And I, over the next few weeks, I can go and do a few more fun sessions because I've got a longer race coming up. So it's been it's been fun anyway, but there have been sacrifices there to, to achieve that that consistency. John, you have gone from more polarized to more all-inclusive and a lot more moderate work. And something always does have to give. If you add more intensity, the only way to stay healthy is something has to give. So what have you, because we've heard all the benefits of why it works, but how does it work now? How have you managed the extra bit on your easy days? I think uh, definitely like the cross training, because that way you have the less pounding and less sort of like injury risk from that. So that's, that's been great, obviously. So we've talked a lot about like skiing or cycling. I do a lot of cycling now because the snow is melted. So doing that, but also just being very mindful of recovery and sleeping a lot. Like, again, it's so easy to say, I'll just sleep a lot, but I'm saying like, go to bed at nine, nine thirty wake up at seven like get a good nine to ten hours of really good deep quality sleep where i live now there is not one noise that like maybe the roof will avalanche in the winter maybe a snow clear will go by it is dead silent there is nothing that's going to affect your sleep from a noise perspective i've got the protective bubble tent sort of like capsulating me into this like almost <laughs> nice environment i think it like my sleep is absolutely great uh i'm concentrating on eating enough vitamins and nutrients and stuff and having a good diet but they're obviously fueling on top of that with a lot of carbs to actually fuel the sessions uh and a vitamin tablet or something like maybe once a day if i don't feel like i'm getting enough nutrients because i'm not that good with my diet it's not that clean it could be better but just generally doing all those things um to try and recover as much as you can even if it's like in the morning you do a session you feel kind of wiped out i could be on the couch my feet up for three hours 
afterwards. And then two hours of sort of moving around, a little bit of stretching, mobilizing, and then go and do a second session. But like, that's the difference. Like, I'm not sort of like, oh, I'll go and do this or I'll paint the house. I'll do this or do that. I'm just recovering. Some days, maybe I do have a bit of extra energy, so I'll go and do something else. But if I do need that recovery, it's all about recovery. And it makes it like a, a strange lifestyle. But that's like another sacrifice. You know, you just got to do everything you can in order to be able to recover. And then as you get fitter, you can handle the training way more Then it's easier to recover. So it's like it's pretty hard, definitely in the beginning, especially if you're going to do more moderate training. It's tough at the start to get into it, but you just need to gradually build it in. And then your ability to recover will actually improve. So I think to, to, to sort of to do more easy training instead of moderate training is sort of like accepting the fact that you won't be able to recover. Whereas actually, I'd rather do the good training and then take it as a challenge to recover from it. And that's sort of like a different way of looking at it. Like I'm going to train good and then I am going to recover. I'm going to change. I'm going to make changes. I'm going to make sacrifices and I'm going to be able to recover from this. And then I, you will like find it easier to recover as well because you have more time to recover. Instead of a four hour slow run in the mountains, I could do an hour and a half slightly faster run in the mountains. That gives me an extra two and a half hours. Is that? Yeah, I think uh, to recover, which is golden. You know, you could be laying on the couch for two and a half hours eating some like proteiny carby type stuff and that's great or you could be out plodding your way around and you get these endorphins too which is like great because like if you feel alive you feel happy you feel healthy and you feel powerful with those cool endorphins then you're more likely to recover as well instead of just sort of like, oh i just plodded around again for the 10th day in a row mm. kind of thing so, there's a lot to it mm-hmm. it's a good answer yeah i don't know really yeah, nothing, nothing had to, nothing had to be sacrificed. You're like Bracken mentioned a give and take. Well, you're not, you're not giving away anything. You're just choosing to add in more of something, and adding in more is recovery. It sounds like. Yeah, I, it's definitely, it's definitely taken like me going from like, just a, living a normal lifestyle to living an athlete lifestyle, and that's why in the app we have a commitment level. You can choose from one to six. And that's like how much training you can either do or recover from. And then the ratio of the different intensities will change dependent on that. Because like I touched on earlier, if you only have three hours of training a week, it's my belief that they should be three good hours. Not like the majority of it really slow, but just like a couple of minutes faster. So if you, if you only have X amount of time to train, you should make those those minutes count. So that's another way that the 80-20 like it maybe doesn't quite work. Because I mean, if you're not getting the slow training done, okay. But if you are going to run, like make it race pace, make it make it good quality miles where you can practice good biomechanics and you can really get the most bang for your buck in, in engine building. Uh, so that's why we have that sort of those two different things which affect what training you're going to get planned per week. You've got the commitment level, which is like how much you can do or recover from. And then you've got the training phase, which is like when your race is. So like what sort of type of training you should be doing. Yeah, that makes sense. So now that you've opened... Uh opened this pandora's box of a golden trail series win john you uh you gotta be looking you gotta be looking ahead and thinking like you know like one thing i don't know about you like what are john albin's hopes and dreams here like what what are we what are we hoping to do not only with like the rest of this season uh like where are you going to be racing and all those things because you want to follow along but like what are we looking at long term here john like how are we approaching your career? Because this is certainly becoming a career now in the, in the endurance world. Yeah, I think um, 
I've never been in Chamonix for the UTMB week, and last year it was really fun. And there's a lot of noise around UTMB, especially like a lot of money coming in from Ironman. It's like a really cool week. I did OCC last year. I managed to set like the course record by 17 minutes or something. I really want to do similar in a CCC. Like I don't know about the course record, but I want to run really well. So that's 101 kilometers towards the end of August from Cormier all the way around to Chamonix. And then at some point in the future, like maybe next year, who knows, I've got to try and qualify the full UTMB course and see if I can sort of take this speed and take this sort of like heart and grit I have to to execute races and see if I could do that over 170k around Mont Blanc and then see what time or see what position that uh, equates to. So that's sort of like the main kind of goal set at the moment. I, I'm doing UTMB races. The next big one will be CCC and we'll see moving forwards. But I have got like other smaller races around. And I, I do want to do Sierra Nal because that is another Golden Trail Series race, but it's like a really famous race in itself. It's just it is a week and a half before CCC. So it's like, in my mind, that's, ooh, you know, dangerous. But Killian, he's doing the hard rock. Yeah. Six weeks later, Sierra Nal, two weeks later, a week and a half later, uh, UTMB. So it's like mine kind of blown. Like, how is that possible? So it's like, to race Killian there would be really fun because maybe he'll be a bit tired. Hopefully, who knows? But definitely, I think for both of us, we'll be training for, he'll be training for UTMB, I'll be training for CCC and we see what happens at Sierra now. But like that is kind of in the works, but it's not like completely set. I will go because I do want to take CCC seriously. And I feel for health wise and performance wise, it's good to take these longer races quite seriously and make sure you recover after them. And then after that, I think I've got uh, eyes on the Trail World Champs, which is once again planned to be in Thailand in, um, I think it's in November. So that'll be like an interesting uh, experience. But that also means not much obstacle racing, because if I uh, if I want good legs for these longer or shorter mountain trail races, it means not obstacle racing, because the moment you go to an obstacle race, it destroys your legs. and It takes a long time to recover, which is where you sacrifice training and sacrifice being in tune with your legs and knowing if they are screwed up or not. It's just really hard with the jumping off walls, pounding, carrying stuff, just random stuff. And it would take a lot of specific training to do how well I'd want to do in those races too. So at the moment, it looks like less obstacle racing and more trail running, but let's just see how the season develops. We did an episode with a different podcast that we have with a panel of OCR people ranking the 10 best OCR athletes of all time. Okay. Classic. The popular vote is that it's either Kobe, John, or Ryan. Yeah. But the head-to-head records and the statistics and the winning percentages, the actual numbers say that it's you or Hobie. Okay. So Hobie's gone. Okay. He's not coming back. You still have the ability to do things. Are you content with wherever you rank in history and you sit there? Or is there a little bit of ego in the back of your mind that says, I am the greatest ever. I never really dedicated my full life to it. And I can pop in and win whenever I want. And I think I want to win another championship or two just to make sure that I'm the best. <laughs> I, I do, like, uh, no, I know you're not ever the person that says I'm the best. No, but, but... I, I, I will fight my corner. But also I am going to say I'm not American. So I don't think I ever <laughs> will be uh i've never the 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 continent will not say john alban is the greatest obstacle racer ever because i'm not american and that's just not how things work and i'm yeah it's just it's not gonna happen sorry uh yeah 
And also, um, Hobie, like, I don't want to take anything away from Hobie. Uh, he raced when the sport was very non-competitive. Uh, and he, he, all those numbers, I'm, I'm, he's won some great races. He beat me in uh, Tahoe and Ryan, everyone, when he came back out of retirement for the 17th time. Um, and he's done some great races, but he got the majority of those wins you're talking about when there was next to no one on the start lines. And the sport in the last, say, should we say 15 years now or 10 years at least has developed like so much. It, it, maybe it's gone down like lately. I don't know because I haven't raced, but it's it's different to how it was before, especially like on the female side as well. And like that is <laughs> one thing to bear in mind, like to win races uh, in the past couple of years. It, it's been more difficult before. And also, I feel like I've raced better across the planet in its entirety rather than just on american soil it's pretty easy to race on your like spartan soil yeah exactly yeah exactly so i mean it depends whether we're going to say spartan or we're going to say obstacle Mm. racing or we're going to say like in the usa or we're going to say worldwide like i've done a little bit of racing outside of europe um apart from the usa so i haven't raced that much outside but there's like there's a lot of different stuff at play here. It's just, I always feel that like all the ranking stuff on Instagram and this and that is practically a popularity contest with just who people like or who's got the most followers. We're going to vote for who. And I've never really followed it that closely. Like I've done a lot of obstacle races, like way back that people probably wouldn't even know ever existed uh, from when I very started running when I was 20 and I won pretty much all of those, but none of those would take, get taken into account anyway. So it does like, really for me it's just about sort of like the athleticism going running good races trying your best turning up and to like put ryan out the picture i think is pretty harsh because ryan in himself is like a great athlete he's a very different athlete to me and that's why it's fun that we can compete in obstacle racing i think when it comes to 24-hour obstacle racing ryan is like a sure in bet because he seems to enjoy it for some reason and to have a reason to do these things is normally the biggest uh, thing you need in order to do well uh, but Ryan's done really well, like uh, in the majority of races he's done as well. And he's had to face some really tough competition. So like, it's not something I really care so much about, but like, I guess it's nice to fight the corner sometimes. Mm-hmm. So are you happy? Are you happy to walk away from OCR right now? Or will you be back at some point? I haven't walked away from OCR. I, I don't I'm not, the, I'm not a cold turkey guy. Uh, I don't quit things completely like even with the jam I'm having some every now and then and it's like I'm not I'm not someone that like will completely never stop doing slow training uh I I'm, I'm not someone that puts his arm up and says I retire because I know all humans are hypocrites but I really try not to be as much as possible and I know I will probably end up doing one at some point anyway so I'm not going to say I'm retired I'm just doing less because I've got other focuses and who knows in the future uh it might be the trail world champs is cancelled suddenly I'll be grip strengthless turning up to the OCR World Championship, seeing if I can complete the latest fandangled grippy thing to swing my way through something and see how it goes. Like, let's just take as it comes. And um, I'm still an obstacle racer. I still want people to be proud that I am an obstacle racer and I still want to fight obstacle racing's corn as a sport in the wider world. It's just um, I'm going to have a little bit less time to do obstacle racing because I'm doing doing other stuff, but we'll just see how it develops in the future. Mm-hmm. Have any of these uh, high-end trail athletes looked at you, John, and been like, John, come on now, man. What have you been doing for the last five years, dicking around on the obstacle courses? Anybody looked at you and just been like, John, you're you're better than that. Has anybody had that conversation with you? Is there any of that sort of disposition? Uh, I generally don't think that there's that many people on the planet that know the random crap I've done. 
and put it all together that it's the same person. So I've done orienteering. <laughs> I wasn't that successful, but it's fun. I've done uh, like Spartan obstacle type racing. I've done like 24 hour stuff of that. I've done like 30 seconds sort of like sprint TV shows worth of that. I've done a million dollar challenge. I've done the death race. I've done like uh, backyard ultras. I've done trail races. I've done sky running. I've done all this random crap. And actually not many people know the whole picture, I guess. So like, Davida was like saying to me, Oh, like, uh, are you going to go to Thunder? And I was like, No, I don't know. I think I'll go to Sierra Now. And he was thinking that Sierra Now would suit me more because it's more runnable and smoother and faster. And the technical uh, terrain in Thunder with the wet rocks and the sort of more sky running feel wouldn't suit me as much. And I was like, But that's what everyone was telling me has been my strength over the past five years. And now suddenly, there's a new group of people that think I'm the far speedy one that can run with the Kenyans. So it's kind of funny that like, you never really see the full picture and just doing all those different stuff has made me um, work on all my different weaknesses, which has made me like a more rounded athlete. But I certainly do feel that the competitions I'm doing now suit me may way more than other competitions have, especially when you compare sky running with the steep uphills to the more runnable stuff I'm doing now, these suit me more. And I think the longer I go, probably the better I'll be to a certain extent as well. So it's just fun. I've worked on all these weaknesses and now I'm doing something that I actually really feel uh, is something that I'm more built to do. That's a scary thought. David is going to have a rude awakening when he faces you on a wet technical course. I guess so. <laughs> like, oh, this John guy, he's only good on the flats. <laughs> it's fun. But then again, like, uh, we'll see. Like, I don't want to take anything for granted. I've got good shape now. Who knows what my shape will be like. I've got to get through another training block. I've got to get through, like, a family weekend with a barbecue and everything first where I'm probably going to end up getting sick. So, um, let's let's see. Take each week as it comes. And uh, I'll just try and keep keep progressing keep improving and keep keeping it relatively fun as well as painful yeah john i feel like there's um there's probably about a dozen more questions i want to ask you but that just means we'll have to do a third episode here sometime you know in the future um bracken is there anything you wanted to wedge in there before we sort of wrap this up Nah, let's save it it's been fun it's been good fine fine one question when is the flight vective 2 coming out Ah, the Flight Vector 2 is never going to come out because they're changing the names, obviously. But I ran in a prototype uh, shoe. I saw that heel was different. Yeah, like everything was slightly different. So, I mean, North Face are doing great work. They've got a company in Annecy working on development of shoes. Specifically, they're working a lot with the fancy foams and the carbon plates. I touched on before, the carbon plate usage in trail shoes is completely different to road shoes. So it's not being used in the same way and it's being used to like, yeah, completely different for different purposes. One of them is to maintain the shape of the shoe so you can run downhill and have this rocket shape maintained and have fresh legs when you get down. And also there is some sort of spring back and the protection through the bottom. But working and adjusting that carbon plate technology is really cool because North Face were one of the first companies to be uh, using a carbon plate and now they're on like, second third fourth try so they're making it better and better and better whereas i feel like other shoe brands are kind of like trying to be like oh a carbon plate trail shoes okay let's give it a go whereas north face know what they're doing they're making things better and the shoe worked like amazingly it had a slightly less stack than the flight vector and there is another one that might have a slightly thicker stack but i don't know what i can say but that shoe i think can win utmb like 
the protection it gives your legs on the downhill is incredible and you do feel spring back and I can run with a similar running stride in it to in the um, alpha flies so uh, two really great shoes coming but I don't know maybe I've already said too much so we'll see this year coming I, I don't know like maybe in the autumn I think I'm not, I, I don't know uh, we'll see like I, I'm, I keep giving them feedback and testing and um, it's exciting and I'm actually allowed to use the shoes in races uh, now and um, it's like it's, it's really cool because those shoes uh, VJ great wet rock slippery but if I'm going to run in Chamonix and run 100 kilometers, I want something that like gives me the protection and the the response I need for those specific trails. Uh, that's why I chose to run in the Flight Vective last year. And I still really enjoy that shoe. I wore it for a race three weeks ago, and that will be a part of my quiver going to Chamonix in August. Uh, but I certainly do feel that the shoes, like I wouldn't say a mechanical advantage, but like it's close to that, at least together with the placebo effect of me thinking that. So uh, it's really fun to have like a company which is like doing that for me so that I can go and be a better version of myself. Well said. And the clothes are nice too. <laughs> yeah. Is that going to be two hours? Right around. Can you imagine, can you envisage anyone listening to all of that for two hours? <laughs> every single week, I wonder. And then every single week people do. Yeah. Excellent. Well, see, no, it's been, uh, it's been fun. Like, like I said, when we started, you two are uh, good at your jobs uh, when it comes to this. So, uh, it was good. It was a good one. Well, it's a pleasure to catch up. I uh, think you and I messaged like seven months ago about maybe yeah. catching back up on this thing, and I'm glad we finally got around to it. And I think timing was great. The world's starting to see you outside of our little circles, and and I like the fact that maybe maybe they're going to find out what we all found out the hard way. We'll see. Like uh, I'll just do my best. Uh... I work on the psychological side and the confidence issues. That's one thing that I can improve on. But like I said, there's pros and cons of that and uh, just try and stay injury free or at least uh, mainly. Uh, and yeah, just see where, see where it takes me. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. No worries. It's been fun. And hopefully the uh, operation went good and you're going to get back up on the horse. Yeah, I get to start running on Monday. Excellent. Well, take it easy. Walk, run, walk, run. And uh, don't, don't be afraid of using the bike and uh, message me if you uh, want to chat through anything because uh, he's always good with the sounding board. Will do. I appreciate it. Cool. All right. See you, boys. Laters. And this episode of The Running Public is brought to you by us and The Running Public Training Plan. This running plan has everything we ever talk about on any Training Tuesday all compiled into one all-encompassing training plan. And if you've been curious about it or you don't know how to put together all the knowledge we share on the podcast into your own training plan, it's a no-brainer. Where can people go find this uh, this training plan and get signed up, Bragging? On our beautiful website, therunningpublic.com. $19.99 a month. Cancel anytime you want. That's right, you can.